Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I am honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us on the program. I'm Nathan Owens, and as usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and I expect the same sentiments you just did. We so much appreciate those who allow us to be in their homes this evening. Thank you so very much. Pastor, I want to start out tonight's episode by just mentioning something that was brought to my attention in the last week. I want to say thank you very much to the individual who called us here at the Lighthouse from Nevis to let us know that Nathan from Nevis, Pastor, you remember his voice many times here on the Lighthouse. I don't think anybody can forget his voice so frequently and so thorough in these kind of questions he asks. Yes, we just learned that he has passed away. And so our condolences from the Radio Lighthouse to the family during this time of loss. And we hope and pray that someone else will pick up right where he left off with the Bible study and also with interacting with us and calling in. That being said, even if you don't have a question, maybe it is a suggested topic that you think would be beneficial for us to discuss in a future episode of That's Truth. Please, please, please give us a call, send us an email, send us a WhatsApp or text, comment it in the the Facebook Live comment section, and we would be glad to have your input on what topics to discuss in future episodes of That's Truth. It is hard to believe, Pastor, that 2000 or 2021 is coming to an end. We've got just a couple of episodes, a few episodes left in this calendar year. Before we jump into our topic, continued topic of prayer, we have three questions that have come in since last week's episode. Thank you to the individuals who sent them in. The first one is, good night, Matthew 21 21 to 22, wasn't that specifically for the disciples? And I will read the context here. Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. In verse 22, And all kings whatsoever ye shall, and all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. 
I think uh, if you look at the context, you could probably admit that it was addressed specifically to the disciples, but I don't think the principle that is underscored is exclusively the domain of the disciples. What our Lord is talking about there is that no obstacle should stand in the way of of, uh, getting God's work done in terms of his kingdom. And he is just saying that one of the great obstacles, of course, in the way is unbelief. And he wants us to know that if we would have the faith that is uh, mandatory and requisite, that all things are possible if we would exercise faith. But the the whole principle basically is that there's no obstacle that can stand in the way of the kingdom of God. If you read the whole context, it has to do with uh, the fig tree that was barren and should have been producing, etc., etc. And so it's really, uh, in a, in a sense, uh, telling us uh, generally that prayer is essential uh, to make prayer effective and that the prayer is only limited to the extent of our real faith in God. And another question that has come in since last week's episode. Pastor, do you believe in the demonic spirits incubus and succubus, demons who lie upon sleeping women and men in order to engage in sexual activity with them? And do you believe in their ability to torment even Christians? Well, I have said on this program when we dealt with the occult, uh, clearly there is truth in this particular matter. Um, I can confirm from knowledge I know with a person we've dealt with uh, that this does happen. Uh, I had heard about it before. I've read about it. Um, There's a book by Dr. Koch, uh, Kongs in the Occult. I recommend if you can get it. It's in that CLC. It's a fairly big tome, but it's worth reading. But he talks about a lot of uh, matters of this nature. Uh, I would say to you that it depends, and when I say depends, it depends on the history of the person, uh, if they've been engaged in occult activity, if they've been engaged in dealing with demonic forces, etc., and especially if there's somebody in the family line, whether a mother, grandmother, or grandfather, who was engaging in in, uh, like black magic or uh, witchcraft, and who have, when that person was small, maybe even devoted that person to to, to Satan or transferred uh, certain powers from one person to the other. So I think it depends. I think even after a person is saved, I still feel that the demons will still try to overwhelm a person, just like temptation. Even though you're saved, it doesn't mean that the temptation goes away. And that if that was an area where you were weak in and you were engaged in, uh, you would probably find that they try to uh, interfere and try to trouble you. I know of a pastor, um, I can say this, who um, was part of a group that helped deliver a, a girl who was about 14 years old from a demonic power. This is when they were in Bible school in uh, Blue Water. He was part of the process of getting this girl delivered. I'm told that she used to run and like she walking in the air. This happened in Bible school, uh, really did happen. But uh, I remember many, many years after that, uh, when we had camp, and he was the director of the camp, I remember he waking us up and uh, calling upon us to pray for him because he felt he was being strangled. And ever since that event where he was part of that group that helped delivered, he came under demonic attack. And this is something that is repeated and repeated. I don't know how much frequently it has happened again. The last thing I heard about uh, about this one is that uh, he, and this happened a few years ago as well, um, he was having camp again, and he was reciting the same story. And I'm told what he was doing, the whole lights went out, and it created chaos almost within the setting. But he has indicated that his involvement in 
the deliverance of this young lady, uh, whatever forces he was able to overcome continues to affect him and others try to influence him. So it's not something you you could take lightly. It can happen, but I think it depends on the um, the history of the person. I also think if you've benefited, whether you knew it or not, maybe you were sick or something has happened in the Caribbean many, many times. There's a brisk trade between St. Lucia and uh, Guyana and Martinique and Guadeloupe, especially the the Catholic countries, a lot of this goes on in the Catholic countries, where people travel from St. Lucia to these islands and supposed to do sort of kind of black magic to help people cast spells and stuff like that. If a person had been a beneficiary, uh, whether they knew it or not, maybe a parent took them to get healed or something like that, um, there, in the, there is an effect that, that continues, and that has to be renounced in the name of Christ. But um, it, it can continue, it can happen, but again, it depends on the involvement and the extent to which they were involved in the occult. The same way as I would point out to you, we have victory over the sin nature, but it doesn't leave us. It keeps back and keep back. It tries to conquer us. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, so Amen. we can overcome the enemy when he does try that. Pastor, what words <clears throat> do you have for the individual who says, I don't really believe that demonic spirits is something that's active in the year 2021 that was just bible stories i would say to anybody who says that is that you 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 put the credibility of christ uh in jeopardy when you do that because clearly uh he himself in his commission in, in matthew sorry mark chapter 16 uh, told the disciples that they would cast out demons, etc., etc. He himself had numerous encounters. I would say also it impugns the integrity of the Bible, which makes it very, very clear uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, to wrestle not against flesh and blood. So anybody that, I don't care who they are, whether they be a professed believer or non-professed believer, anyone that questions the reality that we have demonic forces active on planet Earth, that person is a denier of Scripture and causing the integrity the the, uh, the person and the, and the, the uh, veracity of Christ. And in my judgment, I think that they are, whether they know it or not, they are, in a way, um, questioning Scripture, questioning the Christ of Scripture, which, to my mind, is totally heretical. Another question that has come in, Pastor, why did Paul baptize in Jesus' name, but Jesus said to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? You know, the record that you got there, I think, is in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where Paul uh, asked the gentleman uh, if he was baptized, and uh, he knew about the Spirit, etc., etc. He said that you know, I've been baptized by John the Baptist. And then Paul explained to him uh, John's baptism, and that what John pointed to the Messiah, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then we're told that Paul baptized in the name of Jesus. I, I think it's a mistake to assume that Paul only baptized in the name of Jesus. I think what the significance of that passage is, basically, is that the difference between the believer's baptism, the Christian baptism, and the John, John, uh, the, John the Baptist baptism. And I think what Luke was emphasizing, that he was now baptized in the name of Jesus. But to say that because it mentioned he was baptized in the name of Jesus, excludes both the Father and the Spirit, I think you're missing the whole point of the passage. The whole point of the passage is that uh, he was baptized in a Christian way, according in the name of Christ, as opposed just to the name of John the Baptist. Uh, and by the way, that's interesting as well. When you look at the the, the Gospels, sometimes it seems as though uh, certain Gospels 
example, writers give you certain details the other guy didn't give you. Because what was the point? What's he trying to get across? And that you've got to look at from that perspective. Uh, so I, I, I believe that this was Christian baptism, and I believe it's just that Luke emphasized the fact that just, not just baptizing the name of John, but baptizing the name of Jesus Christ. But that does not exclude the fact that he was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son. I just think that Luke emphasized the point that it was in Christ's name that he was baptized. For the last few weeks, we have been discussing here on That's Truth the topic of prayer. Uh, what is prayer? How do we go about prayer? What are some hindrances to our prayer? What are the proper approaches to prayer? We're going to continue that topic tonight, but there is ample opportunity for you to send in your questions or call in with your questions about any topic. You can call and be put on the air by calling one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 782 Or you can join us on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, you can comment your questions, and they will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. As we continue our topic of prayer... I know right at the end of last week's episode, Pastor, you begin to talk about what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And I think it would be amiss, we would be amiss to not discuss it in some level of detail, more than what we had time to do last week as we discuss this topic of prayer. Any thoughts on the topic? Well, I think we uh, began to look at the subject of the what they call the Lord's Prayer, the Believer's Prayer. And we we, me- we mentioned that uh, the preamble to this prayer basically is what our Lord taught generally about prayer. Uh, he warned warns about ostent- uh, uh, being ostentatious. In other words, doing things to be stand to be seen of people. Uh, we talk about showmanship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He warned again that kind of hypocrisy. And then the other thing that he warned again about was vain repetition. Uh, repeating the same thing. And the word uh, there that is used is battleggio, and it means uh, basically to repeat something idly or mechanically, repeat phrases and words, uh, keep repeating the same thing again and again. It's like, you know, in the encounter where Elijah had with the prophets of Baal, uh, it is said that from morning to the evening they cried on the bill and uh, the, and they went into a kind of a uh, cutting each other and et cetera et cetera et cetera and uh so it's 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 something that was they keep repeating the same thing again and again and of course when Elijah went to prayer um he didn't have to pray from morning to the evening it was a very very simple prayer uh, saying God you know who you are basically show yourself to be et cetera et cetera but uh there's a warning there that the Lord gives and then he gives a pattern. Uh, of how believers should pray. What strikes me, Nathan, initially, is that the very same thing our Lord warns against is how the Lord's Prayer is used. Uh, You know, sometimes in certain churches, part of your penance is that you must say what is called the Believer's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, for 20 times or 30 times. It's the same kind of thing our Lord is warning against. How in the the world we can do the same shameful thing that He warned against uh, because, you know, that is counted as some kind of merit that the person, when he keeps repeating this prayer, or there are people who say the rosary, and depending on how much ro- uh, time you say the rosary, you might get certain sins forgiven, you might get certain types of grace. Uh, I just think it's, 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 it's not comical, not humorous, but um, tragic 
that the very same thing he warned against, people now turn around and use the Lord's Prayer for the same purpose, without any heart in it, just numerical counting how many times you've said it, etc., etc. That's the first thing that strikes me um, in connection uh, with the prayer. But if we look at the prayer itself, uh, Nathan, you'll see that the prayer is pretty much divided into two main sections. Uh, The first three petitions are petitions that relate to God. And then the next four petitions are petitions that relates to ourselves and others. And the last, it ends with some kind of a um, benediction <coughs> that is given or adoration is given at the end. So I think it might be useful just to uh, look at the, the prayer itself and what are the contents of the prayer. Uh, notice the invocation that is given, first of all, how it's addressed. Can you begin that? Yeah, give us the reference, if you would, please. Uh, that's in Matthew chapter 6. Um, the particular Matthew chapter 6, okay. verse, verse 5. five. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, if you want to follow along in your own scripture, says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you that they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Okay, let's stop. Let's stop for just a moment. First of all, we got this is the invocation of prayer where you actually come into God in prayer, and you notice that uh, first of all, it, it stresses our relationship with God, our paternal relationship that He is our Father, and therefore, as His children, uh, we are to approach Him, and it conveys the idea of nearness and uh, relationship uh, between ourselves, our affection, our familiarity with Him that He's our God. But notice that even though He is our Father. It also stresses the fact that we, in spite of this relationship, there's a distance between us and God. He is in heaven and we're in earth. And this has to do with our reverential approach to him. That Even though we come to him as a father and there's a relationship of sonship and uh, there's a paternal relationship, yet we must always be conscious of having reverence and awe of who this God is. Uh, so we must also remember there's a uh, a distance between us and him on the level of our creationship, that he, we are creature, creature, creatures, but he is the infinite uh, creator. That must always be kept in mind. Uh, everybody knows that there's a certain line that you have to always maintain respect for your father. You can become a point where you become so pally-pally with daddy that you actually f- lose that line, and the way you address him and treat him can be lost in the whole conversation. Our Lord wants us to maintain uh, that reverential attitude towards him, but at the same time, remember it's a paternal relationship that we can come to him and bring that request to him. And then uh, notice uh, uh, after that, he said, Hallow be thy name. And these are the, the first petition that uh, 
uh, that comes to him. And the word hallowed be thy name really means uh, may your name be held in reverence or regarded as holy. So we should be concerned uh, about God and uh, his name. And remember, when we talk about God's name, God's name uh, has to do with his revealed manifestation of himself, how he's revealed himself. And uh, the first thing we should be concerned about is that he be one that is considered holy and reverence and that um, one that is regarded um, as separate from us on on ourselves. So we are concerned about uh, his name, his reputation, his uh, attributes, his character. Uh, we are concerned that men consider him to be holy and treat him with the kind of respect that is due to him and due to his name. And then secondly, we pray about his kingdom. And kingdom has to do with God's reign and God's rule. We should be concerned about that. And in scriptures, the kingdom of God is uh, relates to three basic things. Uh, currently, it has to do with God's moral and spiritual kingdom that he's setting up within the hearts of men. Christ said the kingdom is within you. But there's also going to be the millennial kingdom to come when God is going to rule for a thousand years on planet Earth. And after that, there's going to be the eternal rule of God. So it has to do basically with the reign and rule of God uh, in our current dispensation as he transformed men's lives and set up his kingdom in terms of his moral and spiritual kingdom within us. But also we pray for the millennial kingdom to come and then for his eternal kingdom uh, finally to be set up. The third petition uh, is what? Thy will... Uh, be done in earth as it is in, in heaven. Earth as in heaven. So that's the third thing we should be concerned about. Not only about God's name to be held holy and and treated with reverence. Not only that, um, <clears throat> His name uh, be held holy, but we just mentioned as well His kingdom. We're praying about His kingdom, and then we we also think about in our prayer about His will to be done. And this is the desire to see God's um, entire. Uh, program on planet Earth be accomplished, and that man live in conformity to what God's will is uh, uh, on Earth. And also, if it's going to be done on Earth as it is done in Heaven, uh, it must be done cheerfully and constantly and perfectly. That's how we should desire God's will to be done. So when we're praying, we're praying for His name, we're praying for His kingdom, we're also praying for His will to be done. And by the way, this is why uh, people don't understand why Christians uh, oppose things that are contrary to God's will. For example, um, people have a hard time understanding why we don't ac- accept homosexuality. It's against God's will. People can't understand why the church is against same-sex marriage, because what? It's against God's will. What about transgenderism? We we can't sit by idly and ask and pray that God's will be done and His kingdom be established and allow these kind of evils to pervade in society without raising a voice against these kind of things. People just don't understand it. They think that Christians must be acceptable of everything, and you know that's just how society is. We can't accept the the pushing of atheism and communism and humanism and, and society that's contrary to God's will. Uh, and then, of course, um, we can't uh, endorse euthanasia. That That is, you know, people pushing for that. Uh, people can take their life if they want to. We can't endorse uh, immorality. We can't endorse uh, corruption at any level. And, of course, we can't endorse abortion. The church must take a stand on these things. And the reason we take a stand on these things is because they're contrary to God's will. God has expressed His will in His Word. So we know in His Word what God expects. And the church's job is to see that God's will will be done and try to get God's will to be done exercise. When something is being 
perpetrated or done in society that's contrary to God's will. The church is not to be silent. The church is to speak out on these matters because we are praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when we see it not being done and we see that the very contrary is being done and we are silent, we are part of the conspiracy and part of the compromise and we can't do that. What about, you started out by talking about hallowed be thy name. Pastor, is it possible for a believer to have a healthy prayer life and still use God's name in vain? Look, I I think I've heard people, and it might surprise you, I've actually heard people that uh, you know and I know, uh, when something happens, uh, they would say, oh, and then they would use either God or the Lord's name or something like that. Uh, I find it difficult, uh, first of all, to understand how they could do it. That's the first thing that bothers me. The other thing is, uh, I am not too sure they understand that as uh, using the Lord's name in vain. Now, I understand it that way because when I was being brought up from very early age, I was told never to use the Lord's name in vain, and that was perceived to be uh, apparently in certain parts of the Caribbean, that is not perceived that way. But that doesn't stop us from drawing that to the attention of the person to let them know that I'm offended because that is certainly not the proper use of God's name in vain. But I think if it is done in, in ignorance and the person not aware of the, the problem, I think it is possible to do some things that you're not aware of that need to be brought attention to. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul writes again in his writings, I would not have you to be ignorant. And doctrines that Paul would explain, you would say, but I, why? how come they didn't understand that? Uh, and uh, so I think it has a lot to do with maturity, has to do with teaching, has to do with the environment which you're brought up in. But again, once it becomes offensive to you or to me, it is something we should bring to that person's attention to say, listen, this is, this is perceived as against uh, speaking against God's name, and it's not the proper use of God's name, and you should desist from it. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a weekly live interactive call-in program. Full 90 minutes every Tuesday evening. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.56. And we are glad that you are taking part in the program tonight. There's a number of ways that you can communicate with us. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air but you still have a question, please send it in via WhatsApp or text message to one 782 Give that to you again. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. And you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question right there on your device, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Yeah, I want to say something that's donating because then this might c- cause some stir people here. Uh, again, I, we talk about those things that we that are being pushed in society. I mentioned about six or seven of them. But there's another one I think that is just as important. Uh, I cannot see how, the, for example, take um, welfareism, where government, in a, trying to create a safety net, I'm for safety net, don't misunderstand me, those people who are indigent and need help. But there are certain uh, Western countries that have created the environment where it is not, they're not encouraged people to get married. Because you can be living with a guy and get welfare checks. And if you were to get married, uh, 
In other words, you lose certain benefits. So the people who prefer to remain in a, in a single state take all the benefits that the state offers because it is cheaper for them to live uh, that kind of a moral life and, and get support from the government. I'm against that. I'm against that. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he should need. Yeah. And I think that while there are people that need help, the government should help. I am not for uh, social welfareism that encourage people who are strong, strapping, healthy uh, people to, to draw a check from the government or from anybody uh, and, and just um, lazy around and do nothing. And, uh, and I, I'm not for that either. And I think that's contrary to the biblical principle of the work ethic the Bible emphasizes, the need for independence, the need for responsibility. So uh, and I'm saying all of this to say this, that when people hear that uh, Christians are against certain things, they got to understand that we are guided by what God's will is, what God said is His will in His Word. And one thing that God will for us is work. We should work. We should meet the needs of our home and supply the needs of our home. The government is there to help people who are genuine in need of help, and nobody disputes that. But it is downright wrong for government to encourage people to continue in a welfare situation where they could find jobs, work, and be gainfully employed and learn some measure of independence and responsibility. And the church should never support a program that encourages that kind of socialism. How do you teach work ethic? I'm asking that on behalf of the parent who has maybe a, a preteen who says, you know what, I want to make sure that my child, as they grow up, uh, becomes a young person who is God-fearing and is uh, has a good work ethic. How do you go about that? Well, the first thing I would say, remember that some, these things are more um, learned by example than being taught something. And I think the key thing there, first of all, has to be the individual parent. They themselves have to manifest a good work ethic. It's no use try, trying to teach my child about the dignity of work. And I, I, don't, I don't try to find a job. I don't demonstrate the importance of a job. And even when I have my job, I'm at home when I should be at work. My kids know that, and I, I, I waste my time, et cetera, et cetera. How in the world are you going to teach a child that? that? The other thing is that you need to give him some work to do around the house as well. If you want him to learn a work ethic, there should be some chores he has to do. Whether it be, if it's a male, he should be responsible for doing the yard, carrying out the garbage, uh, assisting with um, anything that needs to be done, carpentry, anything along that line, taking care of the livestock, this livestock or whatever. If it's a girl, she should be taught how to do the laundry, how to cook, how to uh, how to wash. Um, I mean, the, the mother is responsible for training her daughter. The husband is responsible for teach, teaching his son. So. That's the other thing that needs to be done, that you have to go back to the idea of letting these kids uh, have children. And then have times when they should work and times when they should play. It's like you have times when they should study and when they should not study. You should, If you're going to create a good work ethic, you have to plan that. It just doesn't happen overnight. So I think the two main things there is the example of the parents. And I think also uh, establishing a, a, a kind of a work program in the home for the child to get involved in and engaged in. Uh, and then at church, get them get, get them involved in activities that the church is involved in. If they're doing a, a cleanup or they're doing a, a project, uh, send the child. He could use a paintbrush. He could nail a nail. Uh, he can learn a skill. Uh, just get him involved in those kind of things. And I think also if you can get involved, like, well, unfortunately, you know, the Boy Scout has been squandered. And I understand it's gone into bankruptcy. But um, 
if the Boy Scout was still along, I would have encouraged parents to get them involved in the Boy Scout. Because I learned a lot of stuff. I learned how to cook in the Boy Scout. I learned camping. I learned to tie knots and how to, how to do drills, do marching, uh, how to set up a tent. Uh, a lot of basic skills I learned when I was in the Boy Scouts. And I would encourage parents to get children involved in those kind of activities if there is an organization that is genuinely concerned and, and would help your child or your daughter. I would recommend that you do that. At what age should you start teaching a child work ethic? It's hard to say, but I think as early as possible. For example, take up the stuff that you throw down. I mean, that that's a basic example. Uh, you got to decide at what stage you do that because some kids are just too young. But you would come to a point when you realize the child knows what they're doing and they just and you pick up all the time. You're not helping them one bit. Uh, you need to tell them, look, you you put this stuff there, you pick it up, and uh, there should be consequences. Don't pick the stuff up. There are small things like that that can be done, but it has to start very early. You're listening to That's Truth, and we are talking about the topic of prayer. We've been on this topic for a few weeks now, and Pastor has been talking tonight about the believer's prayer, or what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Um, not uh, on the side that I just saw, uh, I was reading, where was I? Oh, the news recently, today as a matter of fact. And I saw, uh, I'm, I'm trying to wonder what's happening to Christianity, Nathan. I know we, we got off on doing God, God's will to be done, this kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a, a guy that just topped the Christian music chart, charts twice. And uh, he is a, uh, a LBGT, uh, he's either homosexual or transgender. And I'm saying to myself, how in the world do, do Christians... Uh, I mean, where is Christianity? How do you support a person, and he's bold and brazen about his position on these matters, but yet how can he top the Christian uh, charts of music? I mean, I was I was dismayed to believe that that could happen, but that gives you an idea that Christians, quite frankly, have gotten away from what the primary purpose is about God's will. That is not God's will. That can never be God's will, and I can never facilitate that person uh, singing songs to God when he still has not repented of his sin and living in that condition. How can I go and buy his record and support his record? Christians need to come back to biblical ethics, biblical morals, and take a strong position on these matters. If we're going to reverse this whole ungodly trend that we've got, it has to start with the church. It's not going to start with the world. But what about for the individual who says, my pastor, his music is so well done? That's not the issue. The issue is, is it in line with God's will? I mean... Uh, if we begin to act on that basis, there are people who can do a lot of good things, but the things that they're doing is contrary to God's will and leading people away from God's will and giving people a false understanding of who God is and what sin is. So it's not a question of whether they're musically talented. You're talking about, the, the, you're talking about religious songs. You're talking about songs about, that relate to the Christian faith and relate to God. You don't want a person who is uh, morally perverted to be singing praises to God. I mean, that is totally unacceptable. Go back to the Old Testament and see who could be part of the choir who could sing to God. Yeah. Uh, and I think that Christians have just allowed the social system and the environment in which they dwell currently to dictate how they think, how they feel. And I think generally people, people are afraid to speak out on matters that need to be spoken out against. But this guy is not afraid about that. And I think that I'm hoping that embolden other people to take a stand on these matters. We need to stop 
playing church and start getting serious with God. And uh, it has to start. I, I keep saying this, and you've heard me say this in the pulpit many times. The world is always what the world has always been. The problem is not the world. The problem is the church. The church has to get right and start being what it's supposed to be, and then the world will take notice of the church. But right now, as long as the church remains like the, the world and acts like the church and thinks like, thinks like the world and have the same values as the world and support the same things that the world supports, we have no testimony, no witness, and we have no influence. We have to be different in order to impact people's lives. Do you think that this... Uh, mediocrity of the church has caught God by surprise. Are there any prophecies that talk about this? Well, if you read the uh, book of Timothy, uh, you'll find it talks about perilous times will come, and it says there, there are three, three, three loves. It says love of pleasure, love of money, and love of self. Narcissism, uh, hedonism, and um, and. Um, Mammon, love of mammon, materialism, those are the three great loves that will dominate the end times. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So it's not a matter that God has uh, caught God by surprise. Uh, we know that uh, it's the, the apostasy is going to happen. I believe it's already begun within the church. But again, God has always had a redeemed remnant, a saved remnant. The remnant church is a church that needs to speak out for God. Let the worldly church go in its direction. You can't stop that. It's going in that trend, the trend towards entertainment. But what the, the, the remnant church needs to do is to be a voice for God in a time of apostasy. That's the greatest need at this moment. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is mm. seven and a half minutes after 8 p.m. We still have 50 minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1268-782-1454. Pastor, we have Brother Williams on the phone from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Well, I haven't heard your voice for a long time. I thought you might have been sick or something, man. Good, 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 good hearing your voice again. I'm doing well. Great to hear from you. And yes, I was I wasn't seeing what I every time I try to call the boat shipping, so I couldn't get no service. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, all the time I listen to you. Yeah, we just appreciate your call. That's what we're trying to say. Yeah, no problem. I'm telling you, I talked to a guy, and I don't even even know anything about that fish. I have to call him old wife. Like you have to peel it. You have skin on it. You have to even knife and then peel it for you to use it. And the guy says it's unclean. What's, what's that? You have a fish in Antigua they call old wife. Yeah, I know the old wife. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So the guy says it's unclean. I tell him why it's unclean. He tells yeah. me it has no scale. Yeah, yeah. So I tell him which part in the Bible, if you can show me which part in the Bible, it talk about that I will accept that yeah that's it that's in the Bible you know There's a, there, there are certain things under the Jewish economy uh, the Old Testament economy that there are certain types of things you should need you should have, should have skills and stuff like that. that that was the condition under which the Jewish law sustained that they had uh, what you call dietary laws that regulated what the Jews could eat but those are things that belong to the Old Testament economy and related to the Jewish people exclusively. Uh, th- those are not part. That's not part of the New Testament economy. The that old is what uh-huh. I tell him. Uh-huh. I tell him that was the Old Testament law of Moses. Yeah. So I tell him, look now in First, first Timothy 
up top four. Right, right, right. And he, he cannot brush it aside. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a that's a vital vital part of, of scripture that talks about uh, all. Uh, part of everything created of God is good to yeah. eat, etc., etc. The problem with that is that the Adventists have been fairly successful in keeping pushing the Mosaic Law as the standard by which b- people are supposed to live, and they've been fairly successful in that. And nobody has really challenged them on that, um, s- um, you know. And I don't think that they're they're open to other points of views. I am doing a series now on the Book of Romans, and I'm in Romans chapter number seven. And that's one of the great chapters that Paul explains how we've come from under the law. We're no longer under the law. Uh, and I'm hoping that some of that truth will eventually penetrate and uh, permeate the, the mindset of people who are within the Adventist community. But until you understand that the old law has been done away with and put away in Christ and we're not under new law, you'll always have people holding to that kind of a view. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But Pastor, I wish that in the Bible like that tell you that Telling you why it was a prophet. No, I, I can show you. I can. I can. I can prove to any any uh, um, Adventist that Ellen G. White was not a prophet because I can show you certain prophecies that she made and certain things she thought that were clearly wrong. I can. I can do that with any Adventist if they wanted to have a debate on the whole matter, even on the radio. I could actually show them uh, things that she said that were wrong and a teaching that she said it was wrong. Uh, Ellen G. Wright was just a woman like anybody else, and at that time in the 18th century, when people were have religious fervor, uh, and she was a, a, a plagiarist as well. And what I mean by that, she uh, would use material and claim it was hers, and uh, say that God gave her directly from heaven. Now, there's nothing wrong in using material, but when you make a claim that God gave it to you directly from heaven, as uh, she did. She gave the impression that she was original in her writings. And uh, I have a book in my possession I would lend anybody called The White Lie by an uh, uh, ex-Adventist called Ray that takes the writings of Ellen G. Wright on one side and put where she got it from on the other side and show you quite clearly that she was a plagiarist and quite frankly a very dishonest person. Um, so, but again... And the Adventists were not aware of that. And but anyone that need the book, and c- I can show, lend them the book, or give them the book, or tell them where they can get the book from, and uh, that should enlighten their minds concerning their position that she was a prophet, a prophetess, should I say? Okay, okay. And, and one more thing. Yeah. I'm a captain. I talking to him about Christ, and he tells me every night he pray. I think, yeah, you pray, but one thing I pray. Uh-huh. Then you've got to all prayer, I tell him, I've got on all prayer, but you believe you're going to pray tonight and go back in your field, pray tomorrow and go back in the same field, and you believe you're going to answer that prayer? Yeah. Well, you well God has been blessing him with what he's asking for, I tell him, yeah. yeah there, there are people who prefer to live in, in delusion, and uh, you, all you can do is to witness, and I think with, with your captain, if he's a person you interact with regularly, what will have a gr- the greatest impact in his life is not so much the verbal conversation, it's your lifestyle and the way you conduct yourself, even in your, if you're, you, I know that you're involved in the fishing industry, and if you would show fairness and, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing and, and, and help when you can help. And I think it's going, if he's going to be saved, uh, it's not just going to be because you instruct him and teach him, it's going to be because he sees that your life really demonstrate to him the reality of Christ in your life, I think that is going to be the impact. So try to uh, live the life before him. Still witness, don't misunderstand me, 
but let it be a silent witness of the life that will now that will have a bigger impact than just the, the verbal witness yeah yeah you, you get in that because he, somebody tell me that he tell him oh every time jab get a chance and he go with his bible with his bible with his bible i can go through what what must i read if i'm going to do and i have a 10 minutes uh-huh. And, and my Bible, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, Mr. Williams, not just talking reading the Bible, though, you know. I'm talking about, I'm talking about ethics, morals. I'm talking about, you know, uh, fairness. I'm talking about those kind of things, those everyday type of things I'm talking about. So it's, it's good to read the Bible. Nobody disputes that. But I think it's, it's going to be the ethical, moral lifestyle and the spiritual lifestyle you live that's probably going to have the most impact. But keep, keep, look, people will give you the impression they're not listening to you that you're not paying attention to you, but believe you me, in the sober moments, if your life is so much different than his, I don't care who he is, in the sober moments when he reflects on you, he is going to realize there's something about this guy that is different. Uh, and uh, he, he'll get the message eventually. So just keep but, living the life before him. But then he gets the message because the things he wants to do, he will say, why can't forget about that? I know you're not believing in that. I don't believe it. Right. I, I know something up for that, you know, you know he's wrong and I'm not gonna do it. Right, right, right. And he don't let it go and say, Okay, no problem. Yeah. And even even his bossman we have him taking things and he'll say, What about you what do you think about that? Uh-huh. So I know that they, they give me some kind of respect. Right. Well you you you're you're making an impact. That that's the key to your life. Make an impact by yeah. by yeah. Appreciate that. God God bless you man. Mm-hmm. Keep up the good work. Okay. So take care. Okay, take care of the wife as well. But, Have a good night, Brother Williams. Thank you very much for the call, and thank you for your questions. Continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth on Tuesday nights on the Radio Lighthouse. When was the last time that you invited someone to tune in to That's Truth? Maybe they're not even here in Antigua with you. Maybe they're not even in the Caribbean. Maybe they live on the other side of the globe. Let me still encourage you, send a WhatsApp, call, send an email, and encourage them to tune into That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on Tuesday evenings. If you'd like to call and ask your question live on the air, the phone line is now open and available, 268-462-7420. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. So back to the passage in relation to the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly called, or otherwise known as the Believer's Prayer? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing, basically, is our Lord is saying, get your, your, your mind, your frame of mind wrapped around who you're addressing, and make sure that your focus in your prayer is God's holiness, God's will, and God's kingdom. Get that foremost in your mind before you start making your kind of petitions. You know, we we studied two prayers last week. We looked at the one in Daniel chapter 9 and one in Nehemiah chapter 9, and we saw that that is the same pattern that those people exhibited. They focused on God first, got their mind wrapped around who this one is that they were approaching, and then they were able to make the petitions. And I think this is central to effective prayer, getting off mind set uh, that we're approaching God with a reverence and an awe, but yet recognizing our paternal relationship with him and now we're in a mind of, of uh, we want to do his will, we want his kingdom to expand and certainly we want his name to be reverenced and held in holiness among all people. After we've done that the next four requests have to do with ourselves uh, and uh, others. The first one is daily bread uh, and Luke puts it 
bread from day to day. Uh, the problem with us today, by the way, is that um, most people, because they've got reserves, they've got maybe a bank account, they've got a good job, uh, this doesn't seem to have as much meaning as it should. But yet we need to be very cognizant that we have to understand that we are dependent on God. No matter how much we have in the bank, no matter how uh, what kind of a job we have, we can lose that job tomorrow and that bank account should go into the red in a way that you could never fathom. An accident, uh, a health problem, uh, it just disappears, it evanesces as though it, it was never there and you wonder where it went to. So we must never lose sight of the fact that we must live daily dependent upon God to meet our bodily needs and to meet our bodily provisions. Uh, we must see ourselves as a child coming to the Father in that way. So we must ask God for our daily bread. That's the first thing, our physical needs. The second uh the, the second uh, petition has to do with forgive us our debts. Um, and that word debt is a fascinating word uh, in itself. It has the idea that we owe something to God and that we need to make reparations to God. It's like uh, borrowing money and having to pay back something. And it's asking us to understand that, that sin is not just a, a fib. It's a, a debt we owe to the Lord, and He expects some kind of reparations in the sense that we either come to Him for forgiveness or we, we pay up whatever that debt is in terms of His discipline in our lives. So the, the whole idea is, is that we must perceive ourselves as uh, God is our creditor and we are debtors to God, and we must view sin fundamentally and primarily as an offense against God. You remember when David was praying uh, in Psalm 51 after committing uh, Bathsheba and murdering her? He said, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Now, certainly he sinned against Bathsheba, certainly sinned against um, uh, Uriah. But the point of the prayer is that fundamentally, it was a sin against God. Why? Because God is the one that said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the focus. It doesn't mean that he slighted his sin against Bathsheba or slighted his sin, but it's so overwhelming that he, he really perceived his sin as really what the real sin was about. It's not just about hurting a man and hurting a woman. It's about sinning against a holy God. I started I thinking about Joseph when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. He said, how can I do this great, great sin? Wick, right. Wick, great wickedness. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah. So the, the thing is to, to uh, in our prayer, not only do we see who God is, but we recognize the true nature of sin. And if we were to come to, to that kind of an understanding, we would be disinclined to want to keep repeating the same thing and coming to God again and again. So that is something that is very central in this prayer. And the, the normal word for sin is hemartia, to miss the mark. But it's not the word that is used here. It's the concept that it's an offense against God that requires a payment and that unless you get relief from God, that debt remains. Now remember, it's not talking about our eternal state. It's talking about our relational state with Him because our eternal state is taken care of uh, for all eternity. It has to do with an ongoing relationship with God. Until we uh, seek forgiveness and pardon, um, the relationship is, is um, strained and shattered. And then uh, He says, forgive us as we forgive others, th those who committed de debts against us. And this has to be the disposition of the believer. 
as we come into God and we are conscious of our need because of the offenses we commit against God, it makes us also conscious that others have committed sins against us. And if we're coming to God for forgiveness, we should be disposed in our minds to be willing to get, give forgiveness to those who ask uh, forgiveness. So we must have an, a forgiving attitude as we seek forgiveness. So we're talking about our daily needs, our physical needs. Now we're talking about our uh, spiritual needs in terms of having sins forgiven and sins pardoned, but we're now coming to the realm of our social needs because normally when we don't forgive, it creates social problems between ourselves and the other person. And then a third uh, petition is to lead us not into temptation. Now, temptation is a neutral word in the Bible. It means one of two things. It means either temptation to evil or testing. Okay. So it depends on the context in which that word is used. The same word for temptation, the same word for testing in the Bible. It depends on the context in which it is found. We know from James it says God should not God does not tempt any man to do evil. Right. So what it's talking about here is lead us not into testing. We don't really I don't have anybody who wanna be tested, but mm-hmm. God does test his people. He tested Abraham, uh, with his son, he tested Job, he tested David, and uh we are praying that God uh would limit basically putting us through this this testing uh, as a believer. But remember that God still tests us to develop our faith and really to manifest our character. So there are times when He will test us, but it's not something that we desire. We, we, if I'm praying, I'm asking God, don't put me to a test. So we must be praying that uh, you know, to God to, to hold back this these tests uh, in our lives. And I think every sane person uh do not really desire to be tested. But couldn't that be praying against the will of God? Well, it could be, but you don't know. You don't know. There's some things that God's mind changes in answer to prayer. And what I mean by that is that uh, there's a a teaching in the Bible that if we pray, believing, we ask, it should be given. So that's a way of changing God's mind in respect to a matter. Uh, but this is a, a, a dark area that we're not too sure exactly how the interaction is. We do know that our Lord is instructing us, and I think it's, I can see it very, very clear that if I'm praying, God, don't put me through this test. I may not be able to handle it. Leave that. You're praying that God would not, but God can overrule your prayer in that request. But I don't know of anybody who want to go through the fire of testing. Uh, so it's a prayer that we should ask, and uh, God may be gracious enough uh, not to allow us to go through. On the other hand, he might say, okay, I think you need it in spite of your prayer. We've got to leave that to a sovereign God to make that decision. But we should have that disposition. We should not be bold as a lion. Give it to me, God. Yeah. <laughs> Pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before fall. We must always feel that we are vulnerable, we are weak, and uh, we must be very, very careful in what we ask and not put God to the test as uh, Satan attempted Christ to do to cast himself down because he had a promise in the word that the angels would bear, his, bear him up lest he hit his foot against the rock. And then uh, the fourth one is deliver us from evil. Now that word really is deliver us from the evil one. That's the literal translation, the evil one. And again, it is praying, recognizing that our enemy uh, go about like a roaring, iron, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he's asking us to deliver us out of the hand of the enemy so he's praying us to protect us from satanic uh, assaults satanic temptations uh, satanic trials in our lives he's asking us to uh, Lord deliver us when the enemy comes etc so you, you, the first set has to do with focus on, on God 
Then we come to our own personal needs. Then we talk about the needs in relation to others. And then, of course, we deal with uh, the needs in relation to the attacks of the enemy. And then it ends with one doxology, uh, that thou art the kingdom and the power and the glory. Here's a recognition uh, of God's greatness and, uh, and God's sovereignty, and that uh, everything should be done to the glory of God. Uh, that would be the way we celebrate God at the end of our prayer. Now remember our Lord said, after this manner, in this way to pray. So the key thing here, Nathan, is that when you're going to pray and sometimes you don't know how to pray, keep this pattern in mind. What do I pray about today? I'm so tired, so where would I? That's the pattern. Focus on God first. What are you going to focus on? His name, that it be holy. His will, that it be done. His kingdom, that it comes. Now, I've done that. But in my mind, I also, well, what are my own needs now? I start making pity. Then I think about others. What about others who offended me? Then what about the satanic attacks I'm going to go on? That's the frame of mind. It doesn't mean you repeat the prayer. But in your thinking, you keep that as a pattern, and that guides you in knowing how to pray effectively as opposed to be doing vain repetition all the time. That's why this prayer was given uh, as a model, as a paradigm for us to bear in mind as we go into prayer. We have two WhatsApp questions that have come in uh, from the Southern Caribbean. First one, I have a question regarding David. Didn't David have concubines, and is that considered committing adultery? Of course. Uh, we, we all know that. Uh, and by the way, let me just say this. Because something is written in the Bible, it's not that God sanctioned it. As a matter of fact, it's one of the ways I know that the Bible is the Word of God is that He, he gives warts and all about the believer. Uh, a great man like David, uh, if it was not the Word of God, those are the areas that would be would have been brought out and not included in his, in his autobiography. But God hides nothing from us. He let us know exactly what David was like and exactly the kind of a sins that David committed. The problem with David, of course, that David did not have the Bible like we have the Bible today. I mean, we've got, got to remember that. He didn't have the prophetic writings. Uh, he only would have had the book of Moses, but he would not have had the other, other writings. We have a complete uh, writings today. The other thing is that um, David and a lot of these kings were governed by the social system and the political system around. A lot of what David into marriage was political marriages so that uh, to avoid being attacked by another a foreign entity, he would marry the the, the daughter of the uh, the king of king of king Pharaoh in Egypt. That would create good relations between Israel and Egypt. He might marry uh, somebody from the other surrounding uh, nations. Again, it was all part of the whole political mess. It's not something that the Bible supports or endorses. It's just like you know, this was a reality. What I would say, though, in in in, in, uh, in relation to this same question, we must not use. David's improprieties and David's blemishes and David's Old Testament way of living to be the standard by which we live today. I find that's what people are looking at. They say, well, you know what? Uh, David had more than two wives, so therefore I can, have, uh, I can have more than one wife. Again, we must go back to what is God's original intent, as our Lord said. He made them male and female, and the two should be joined and join one flesh. It was God's will from the very beginning for a monogamous relationship. Unfortunately, uh, that was not followed through. And again, remember that Moses is, is the one that wrote the the law. And remember that a lot of these things that were practiced came long before the law was written, and that was his social custom. Uh, so it's not something that God endorsed. It's something that he, he documented that this was the flaws and the errors of David, but not with approval of these things being done in David's life. 
And the second question, good night. How do you deal with rejection, humiliation, and building your self-esteem? Tough one. Uh, I think the the best way probably to deal with these matters is to know who you are in terms of your identity in Christ. Um, if you're not too sure of your identity in Christ, I think, and you're dependent on others opinion of other people and the support of other people to give you your sense of self-worth, I think you're in serious trouble as an individual. Now, I know that when you're young, uh, we all depend on people to beef us up and to butter us up and make us feel good. But as we get older, we have to come to the point in our Christian faith where what really matters is my standing before God, that I am made in the image of God, therefore I have dignity, I have value, that I am redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore I have worth. And I must find my identity in Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted to his family. I'm reconciled. I'm justified. I'm forgiven. I'm glory. I'm going one day to be glorified. I'm a child of the King. Uh, I'm part of the household of God. Uh, I'm part of the body of Christ. You have to find your identity in him. Um, the other thing I think would help you a lot in terms of raising your self-concept and your self-esteem uh, has to do with your parents. I mean, it might sound terrible to say this, but I mean, um, your where you carry yourself uh, cr- create people's opinion about you. And I think um, one of the ways that you can lift your um, value in terms of how people see you is to uh, decent up yourself. In other words, if you're wearing old maid's dress that go down to the bottom of your feet and drag on the floor, and uh, you're here, it's in the same like, same style all the time, uh, you don't ever try to make yourself attractive, uh, don't be surprised that people avoid you and people say negative things about you, right? So I do think it's an element where you can be partly responsible for people's evaluation of you, and I think you can help yourself in, in, in that regard. So I think that that's another thing. The other thing is find a career, um, excel at something. It doesn't have to be um, anything um, out, out extraordinary, but if you are seamstress, be the best seamstress you can be. If you do uh, a beautician and you do, uh, be the best beautician you can be. If you're a plumber, be the best plumber you can be. If you're a mechanic, be the super mechanic in the whole island. In other words, once you have a particular skill that you excel at, that would lift your spirits in ways that you would never fully imagine how it can lift you up and make you feel good about yourself. The other thing is this, avoid being around people that are negative. Uh, If they say things that uh, impinge upon your mind and make you feel bad about yourself, those are not the type of people you want to be around. And I would say to people, try to be around God's people. Okay, you know that it's not perfect among God's people, but very seldom are you going to find that any believer is going to tear down somebody quite deliberately. Uh, 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 in a, it's not going to happen. It can happen, but it's not going to happen that way deliberately. So I would think that you would want to find yourself among God's people if you want to uplift your your um, and. Uh, one of the things I'm going to say in one of the practical things about uh, prayer life is that once in a while have an identity session in your in, when you're praying. In other words, repeat who you really are uh, uh, that God says that you are. Uh, and sometimes you need to repeat that and about 15 to 20 things that God says about you as a believer that once in a while you probably need to sit down and just 
ponder these things and repeat to yourself, I'm a child of God, I'm born again, I'm part of God's family, I'm justified, I'm sanctified. Right? I'm one day going to end up in glory. I'm eternally saved. Uh, God loves me. God cares about me. God promises. If you could just sometimes to uh, say these things to yourself and remind yourself of who you are, uh, it can lift your spirit. Uh, if you leave on mornings reminding yourself of these 20 things that God says about you and you keep those things in the foremost of your mind, uh, it will lift your spirit because the word of God is meat indeed and man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from God. So find out what God says about you and hold to those truths and repeat them to yourself because we have a very short memory and we need to be constantly reminded of these things. Those are five or six things that comes to mind almost immediately. But... Um, I think if you're looking for the fine, complete um, approval by society and by individuals, maybe even important individuals in your life, uh, I think you're barking at the wrong track. I think you need to find your identity in Christ. And I do feel that career is important. I do feel that trying to look attractive is important. And I do feel trying to excel at something in life will be uh, very, very helpful for you as an individual if you want to have a, your whole attitude change. Uh, to re- and then, of course, get yourself in God's house. Uh, hear the word where it can lift your spirit and, and challenge you and get other believers around you. Find a good friend uh, as a believer that can pray with you and talk with you and chat with you and commune with you and uh, discuss issues with you so that you don't, don't become a burdensome thing that you're holding yourself and you don't share with anybody else. Thank you to the individuals who have called in or sent in questions thus far tonight. If you have a question and you'd like to call and be live on the air, we still have 20 minutes left in tonight's episode. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. If you would like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 782 Uh, Pastor, we have a question that has come in. Just like Adam and Eve had to wrap themselves in fig leaves after they sinned, did Jesus know that they were going to wrap him in swaddling clothes from the dead because he knew he was going to die for all sin? Well, that's a standard Jewish custom. So if he's going to die a Jewish death and be buried in a Jewish grave, that's the standard way in which uh, people buried each other. So uh, so from eternity, he would have known that he would have died, and he would have died when he would have died, and he would have known the manner of his death. And since it's a Jewish burial um, ceremony, he would have known exactly that would have happened. Um, so I don't think there's any mystery to that. I just think that uh, because it was done, he was not treated any different in terms of how he, after his death, how they, they would take them down and put them in a, um, a cave and wrap them up. That's a standard way that Jews would bury their own dead. So, so he wasn't treated as a king? No, he wasn't treated as king. He was treated as a, as a traitor. He was treated as a deceiver, quite frankly. He was treated any ordinary person who had died. The, the fortunate thing, of course, of course, he was buried in a rich man's grave, Joseph Arimathea. Ar- 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 yeah. yeah. And it is possible that uh, Joseph and the ladies might have done some extra things to his body with the spices, for example. I think it's over 100 pounds or something like that that was read that they, they spiced them up with. Imagine what that would have meant. But that has to do more with the affection they had for him, etc., etc. Remember, they didn't think he was coming out of the grave. So they were so much appreciative of who he was. And they showed um, kindness and reverence towards him, but that was standard where people would be buried back in those days. 
You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, anything else you want to mention about the Lord's Prayer? No, I just I think the key here uh, is to keep it as a pattern. And I keep, when we're praying, we should go with that same kind of a mindset, God first, ourselves, others, and then Satan attacks. And I, I cannot think of a prayer that we can think that we could not fit into those categories. Let's focus on God, get our minds around who this one we're approaching. We have a relationship with Him, paternal relationship, but yet we must have this reverential awe for Him. We must be concerned about His name, His kingdom, and His will. I could see us praying about that. Uh, we could spend some time praying about God's kingdom, God's will, God's name, etc., etc. And then we come to ourselves, our needs. At that time, of course, we need daily bread. But there are other needs that will come in at the same time that we'll mention there. Maybe you've got to pay a bill. That will come in at the same time, my needs. And then as I finish there and I ask for forgiveness because all of us sin in th- word, thought, and deed. We need forgiveness. Then I think about, I need forgiveness, but have I forgiven that person? So I'm thinking about the other person now and I begin to pray for that person, that person's needs. And then, of course, I'm thinking about, well, what about the circumstance of my life that I'm going through today? The temptation, the testings, and I begin to pray about that. And then the great enemy that is going to bring things against me begin and then you know so I think that's the real thing that God desires for us so that we don't keep repeating the same thing again and again and again and we don't know what we're doing what we're doing what we're doing because I can pray for God's kingdom a different aspect now I just learned about a missionary whatever that becomes part of his kingdom as well but I'm not praying for the same missionary and repeating the same thing again although I might need to do that sometimes so as I'm seeing the people involved in his ministry like we just learned about so many Muslims now coming to Christ uh, his kingdom is expanding I can pray that his kingdom expand in Iran or Iraq or something like that. That leads to my prayer in that, that direction, right? So it it's really is, it opens a whole new spectrum where the question now is, I've got so much to pray for. Not what do I pray about now, but what specifically do I pray about these things? And so I'm not spending five, ten minutes asking myself what to pray for. Uh, you know, I I know what I I have the idea what I should pray for, and it guides my prayer, and I don't have to spend this half an hour in silence. God, what I pray for, He has told me the pattern, right? And we can't go wrong. He said, after this manner, this is how you pray, and that's how we uh, we should. Doesn't mean that not times we pray impromptu, but in our private prayer as we come to Him. That's the pattern we should follow. What about the basic mechanics of prayer? Let's focus on the posture and maybe the time when I pray. Well, look, some people get so wrapped up with these things. You know, should I be standing? Should I be sitting? Can I pray when I'm laying down? Do I pray with my hands closed? Do I pray with my eyes closed? Uh, All of these are basic things that people are talking about. Look, posture of the body is not the vital thing with God. The most important thing that God is concerned about is the attitude of the heart. And when you search scriptures, you'll find that there are a variety of illustrations of the different ways and different positions that people had when they were praying. For example, in Matthew 11, you got standing while you're praying. You might read Matthew eleven twenty-five. Matthew eleven twenty-five reads as follows. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. If you read the context, he's standing there and he just, out of impromptu, he just prays while he's standing. He doesn't fall down on his face and and, 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 uh, bow his head. He just stands and he prays. Uh, If you look at Luke chapter 11, you've got an example of of kneeling. Luke 22, verse 41. Uh, Luke twenty two forty one. Yeah, 
Luke 22, scroll down to verse 41 here. It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. So notice the first case, he's standing praying, but no, he's kneeling. Posture is in material, quite frankly. Uh, if you look at Matthew twenty six thirty nine, you see another um, bodily position that is mentioned there uh, in relation to our Lord. Matthew twenty six thirty nine, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, "O fa- O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt." Not the over twenty seven prayers of our Lord in the in the, in the Gospels. But we just look at three. But notice that he doesn't pray in any one particular posture. One is standing praying. One is kneeling praying. And this one, he's prostrate down on the ground, laying down, face down, praying to God. Psalm 63 <coughs> verse six. and verse 6 says, When I remember oh, thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, and then if you look at Second Kings 20, verse 2. <clears throat> Second Kings 20, verse 2. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying. If you look in, um, read, read a few verses before, you find that the person is lying on the bed uh, when, he, when he's approached. <clears throat> The point here in Psalm 63 that he's meditating uh, in in the in that prayer that he has in Psalm 63, he's meditating where? Remember in Psalm 63? On his bed, right? So he's, he's lying down and David is meditating and David is praying while he's lying down on his bed. So you can be praying laying down as well. You can be laying down on your bed and you'll be praying. Not every time you have to get up and kneel on your bed. There's some people think unless you kneel, you're not praying. But in David's case, in that particular prayer that David has, he's meditating on the Word and he's praying to God. Look at 1 Kings 18.42. Says, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Okay, again, that's another form of prayer. Uh, our Lord fell down on his face before, but he's now putting his, it's almost like a um, a baby. Fetal position. A fetal position. Again, different type of prayer. Uh, look at um, Genesis twenty four twenty six. Genesis twenty four twenty six says, And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. I did in Exodus forty Exodus four thirty one. Exodus four and verse thirty one says And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Right, and then uh Exodus twelve twenty seven. <clears throat> Exodus 12, verse 27 says, That you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. That's 12, 27. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. Yeah, the idea of worshipping God in prayer there in those different passages. But notice this bowed head. Uh, 
So when you look at it, uh, I just mentioned six different examples of different postures. Let me give you one other one. Uh, look at John um, 11.41. John 11 and verse 41 says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Yeah, no, again, different position now. He's at, he's not closing his eyes. He's lifting his eyes. As a matter of fact, you cannot find one reference in the Bible where anybody closes their eyes when they're praying. Really? You check it out. It's not there. <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> Seriously. Kind of like the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart. People think it's in the yeah, Bible, but yeah, it's not yeah. there. They can't find it, but that's something, a tradition, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, always, the Jews are always lift the line in prayer when they're praying. They're never closing their eyes. They always lift it to the heavens when they're praying. Yeah. Uh, it's just that we've got into that kind of a custom. So there's seven different uh, postures we just mentioned, quite frankly. And it's very, very clear that the Bible does not recommend as a norm any one particular posture. However, I would say this, generally speaking, when most people are praying in the Bible, they're kneeling. And uh, if you want to use that as a symbol of our standard, as the proper procedure, that probably would carry more weight than all the others. But the Bible does not recommend any particular form of, of, of prayer in terms of posture. But kneeling is generally the norm that you find in most prayers in the Bible. That's all I can say on that particular subject. So what really matters then is not the posture, uh, Nathan. What really matters is the disposition of the heart and the state of the heart. That's what really matters. You remember the lady in John chapter 4, the Samaritan lady? She said, you Jews say we must worship in Jerusalem, and we say you should worship in, in Mount Gerizim. And what the Lord said, woman, the hour is coming when neither in Jerusalem nor Mount Gerizim are going to work, but you worship God in spirit, and it doesn't matter where you are, worship God in spirit and in truth. So well, it's not Jerusalem nor Mount Gerizim or the church. It's more about worshiping God in sincerity and in truth. That's what really matters with God. So there's nothing unique about going into a church and prayer. Remember, the church is a building. The people are really the church, to be very honest with you. Uh, so there are people who think, unless you go into a church and kneel and pray, they think that, and they believe that if they go there, it's more effective than if they pray. There's nothing like that to support it at all, what in the scriptures. What about the time that I pray? Well, if you check the Bible again, you find that there's no recommended norm as to this should be. But you do find that there, there are people that offer prayers at different times. Uh, for example, look at Psalm 55, verse 17, with David. Psalm 55, and verse 17 says, Evening and morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Again, that was David's practice, right? Uh is it the practice of every believer? Is that the norm for every believer? The Bible doesn't say that. But David is just saying that this is three times he would pray. No, David prayed more than three times? Probably did. But that was his standard habit of discipline that he had. Morning, noon, and evening. And then look at Deuteronomy. Look at sorry, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. That's where my mind went as you were talking about uh, the verses we just read. And when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God, his God, as he did aforetime. Again, this was Daniel's practice. And, and notice that Daniel doesn't alter his practice to accommodate 
the fact that he has been compromised and uh, there's a, a attack on him they're trying to destroy him but he doesn't uh, he didn't go to the window and open it that wasn't something that he did just to show them this was his normal thing he went about his normal it was not showmanship now but he was not going to curtail his prayer life in order to uh, not um, have people trying to get the king to get him killed because he offered a petition to a god so he's not trying to protect himself he just go about his normal now if daniel had just opened the window uh to just to provoke that'd be a different thing altogether that would not be the norm but three times a day daniel prayed and he just went about his normal without allowing the threat uh to intervene um look at psalm 55 verse 3 as well and you see that psalm 5 verse 3 my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. And look at Psalm 88, verse 13. Psalm 88, and verse 13, reads as follows. But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Yeah. Now if you read those Psalms, you think that David only prayed in the morning. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is why you can't use that as a norm. But I would say to uh, most people, I think it's a good practice if we could discipline ourselves that we could have a time of prayer before we do anything in the morning and we go off to work, etc. Imagine what it would be in terms of the effect it would have on people's lives if every single Christian in Antigua, before they went off to work, spent 10 or 15 minutes in prayer. You imagine what that wow. would do. Now think about that. I'm not talking about an hour now, Nathan. I'm talking about just spending 15 minutes every single morning before they head off to work. I tell you, it would transform this country, it would transform the church, it would transform every single person's life. The fact is that it's not something that people do uh, regularly. Look at Psalm 141, verse 2 and 5. Psalm 141, verses 2 to 5. Two two five or two, two and five. Two and five. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. Yeah. He's talking praying in the evening, the evening sacrifice, the time of prayer. So it's not just in the morning. He's directing his prayer during the evening sacrifice as well. Okay? So not only morning, uh, evening. And then look at um, Acts 3.1. Acts 3.1. Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Okay, that's another time of prayer. That's about 12 o'clock, basically, in time. And then look at Acts 10, 9, and 30, verse 9 and 30. Acts 10, verse 9 says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey, they drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And skipping down to verse 30, and Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Peter prayed at 6 o'clock, Cornelius prayed at 9 o'clock. You see the difference? There's a the, the, the disparity, three hours difference between between that. So there's not, it's not as though there's any specific set time uh, in Scripture. What I would say is this. Uh, 
generally people at times, in terms of prayer, if you look at Psalm 77, verse 1 and 2, one of the times to prayer is you pray in a t- day of trouble. <laughs> I think that's probably when it comes to the most natural. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Psalm 77, 1 and 2. Yeah. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Again, when we're really, really in deep, deep trouble, uh, I think all of us are inclined to prayer. But you'll find that in several of the Psalms, uh, you'll find that, that, that phrase being repeated, I sought the Lord in the time of my trouble. Uh, and therefore, and you know, our Lord said, call upon me in the day of what? trouble and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that you know not of. So when a believer finds himself in a dilemma, the Lord says, call upon me. And don't be embarrassed to call upon him in a time of trouble because that's exactly what he told you. If Another thing is that, um, look at uh, Matthew fourteen nineteen. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. That's praying before meals. People ask that question, don't they say prayer before meals? Well, here's a meal that's being served by the Lord, but before he actually served it, he, he prays to God and thanks God. Look at Acts 27, verse 35. Acts 27, verse 35 says... And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Again, notice again, it's before meal, and uh, he prays before meal. And then if you look at First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, this interesting verse. Uh, this was alluded to already by uh, uh, Mr. Williams, I think. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And prayer. See that? So clearly when you're going to eat, uh, there is a biblical injunction that you at least prayer. Uh, when I'm praying, Nathan, I normally pray and ask the Lord to, what I'm eating, that it doesn't hurt my body. That's how I pray, quite frankly, uh, when I'm praying. Whatever I'm eating, basically, it doesn't affect the body in, in a negative way and preserve. That's how you, but that's what he's saying. It's sanctified and, and uh, purified through prayer. And then the other thing is, um, uh, far as time, Luke five fifteen and 16. Luke five fifteen and 16 says, But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Yeah, time of busyness, when you're so busy and you think you can't, don't have time for prayer. The very opposite happened with Christ. When he was busy, or I know he was going to be busy, he prayed uh, because he recognized he's going through this period of busyness. Uh, and that that's that's the time we should be praying as well. Uh, when we've got so much to get done, we can't get it done. We figure that we, if we spend time prayer, it's wasted time, so we better get to it. But again, that's the time we need prayer more than, than, than we think. And our Lord is a perfect example of that with all the busyness that he has. So when it comes to uh, posture, there's no mandated normative 
posture when it comes to time. There's no mandated normative time that you pray. Uh, but I do feel that prayer is proper in the morning for sure. I think that if we can get into that habit, I think that's probably the best habit that we can do as believers. You threw out there a couple minutes ago the idea that if each Christian in Antigua spent 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of their day before they did anything in prayer, how it would transform the families in this country. And uh, I was thinking, at the very least, it would calibrate our minds to spiritual things rather than the concerns and the stresses of the workplace and the daily life. Very definitely. Uh, I wish that... uh, the church look I where I'm living every Saturday there is a, a church nearby that this start practicing music from about 7 o'clock and it goes up like 10 11 o'clock the thought has hit me what if that time I'm not saying there's anything wrong with music let me say yeah. what if that time was spent and I could hear the prayers of the people in that church from where I'm living hmm. and they were going from 7 to 10 o'clock just praying to God of heaven the, the thought just hit me what a what a what an impact that would have if I can hear it from where they are and the people around could hear God's people in prayer that length of time as opposed to spending four hours in doing the music I just it just dawned on me uh, how much we do so many things that are good but the best thing we're so negligent of it and that has to be the matter of prayer Pastor is it acceptable in the eyes of God to multitask, to be doing something else as you are praying to God? Yeah, because that's what praying without ceasing is. I mean, uh, you can be driving and praying. You can be writing a manuscript and praying. You can be repairing uh, a board, a system, and be praying. So there's nothing wrong. That That's your mindset. Uh, clearly that can happen. I think that's desirable as well. Is it possible as a Christian to pray too much? Oh, never. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was I brought a list of people who prayed. Uh, for example, Charles Simeon prayed for four hours a day. John Wesley prayed for two hours every single day. And uh, Martin Luther said if he didn't pray the first two hours, the day would be wasted. And I didn't know this, but the early Methodists, they spent four, uh, two hours in the morning praying and two more hours in the evening praying. That was part of the Methodist system. Wow. I mean, it is, when you read about these things, you're embarrassed. Thank you for listening, and make sure that you join us next week as we continue this topic. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.